Uh, shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for this day, and thank you so much that we can gather. Thank you for the Word of God, the hope of the Gospel. We bow down before thee and worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and pray that, that as we open the Word and as we proclaim the Gospel of Jesus, that uh, you would speak in and through the speaker, and that you would open our hearts. There's so many things that crowd in upon our hearts that distract us, we're easily distracted, Lord. The cares of this world, the issues, the problems, the worries, all of these things, Lord. And I pray that we might hold them at bay, that the Spirit of God would teach us this hour the things that you would have for us, and that there are those here that have never put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, today would be the day of new birth. And I always pray that way with expectation, Lord, knowing that the Word of God is powerful, it's quicker and more powerful than any double-edged sword, and it pierces and divides the heart. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God that breathes hope and light into our dead hearts and saves us. And I pray that that would happen even today. And pray, Lord, for the rest of us that know you, that you might strengthen us with the meal that you have at hand, that we might be girded up in the loins of our mind to think your thoughts more clearly, more focused, more with determination and intentionality than we perhaps have. Forgive us, Lord, for sloppy thinking and sloppy living, for we know that it leads to utter sinfulness. And we ask that you would cleanse us and wash us and encourage us and, and teach us today. And may we be more determined as we leave here today to live for Jesus. We pray that his name and his name alone would be lifted up in this hour. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, take your Bible. Let's uh, look at uh, Romans chapter 12. We're looking at a part two message. Uh, as uh, I've, I've called this, the gospel changes everything. It's the ultimate game changer. Uh, the ultimate game changer. I don't know if you were like me. I wasn't for New York Giants or the New England Patriots, but uh, I watched the whole game and didn't get out of the seat till the last second. It was a great game, you got to say. Oh, I didn't know how that was going to end. What would be the ultimate game changer? Would somebody miss a field goal? Would Brady throw a bomb in the last second and win? I mean, he does that all the time. It's sort of like standard operating fare for Tom Brady. Probably, and I hate to say that because he plays in the Buffalo Bills division, probably the greatest quarterback who's ever played. And I say that because I'm trying to be neutral and say that even though uh, Jim Kelly and others were pretty good. Uh, Tom Brady is, seems to be in a league all his own. He and the, uh, the brothers, I, I think so. But no ultimate game changer. But the gospel is, I'm telling you, is the ultimate game changer. It changes everything. Everything. You once were in darkness, but now you see. If Christ has found you, you once were dead, you know, living it up to your tonsils in sin and loving it, but hopeless, without Christ in this world. And Christ uh, invaded your life. Somebody shared with you the gospel. And God opened your eyes. You go like, where have I been? I'm a sinner, lost. Yes, I deserve judgment. That's me, Romans 1 to 3. And God saved you, maybe as a little boy or girl, maybe as an adult, maybe as an older folks. Have you ever noticed the longer people go on, the hardening of their heart gets, and the fewer people come to Christ? It, uh, it seems to be so, but not always. I saw a 90-year-old gal come to know the Lord Jesus as her Savior, but that's rare. I've seen many, many children, and some in middle age, and just a few up at the upper end. I've been praying for a man uh, who's 88, and he keeps... Uh, talking to me about the Lord Jesus and telling me gospel stories and jokes that I might share. And I keep praying, Lord, open his heart. He knows enough. Open his heart. 88 years old. God save him. That's a great one, huh? God invades. How about the Apostle Paul? He's on the way to Damascus. He's a, he's a zealous Jew. He's going to lock up and kill the Christians. And then he met Jesus. And that's a picture of your life and mine it is the ultimate game changer. It changes the way you think about your body. 
It changes the way you think about your assets and resources. It changes the way you think about death and the obituaries and sickness and your time and your children and your family and the nation. All of the, it's the ultimate game changer. Should be. And that's why Paul in Romans, he, after giving the longest extended gospel track in the entire Bible, he comes to chapter 12, verse 1, even as Mark read, he calls on us as brothers, those that will embrace Christ, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that's the gospel, to present, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship, if you will. And then verse 2, which is our focus today, do not be conformed to this world, but rather, it's the strongest adversative in the Greek, but rather, here's the huge contrast, but rather than doing that, be being transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Well, the gospel changes everything, and today we're going to note that if you know Christ, you're to be a thinking man or woman. Please don't ever come in here as you park your car in the parking lot that you park your brains there. Some people do that. They come in kind of nimble, kind of like, show me which way to go, point and push. No, come in here and move that transmission of your thoughts into high gear and think. We do not believe in pastoral authority. We believe in biblical authority. Now, I'm studying and, and, and wait upon the Lord to preach a sermon that God would have for you and for me. You get to live with it 45, 50 minutes. This thing beats me up all week long. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, help me. It does. And we are to be men and women that know the Word of God and are thinking thinking, not living in this never-never Alice in Wonder world of amusement. Americans are amusing themselves to death through distraction and technology. No, there's nothing wrong with it in its place. But it, be careful. Do you know you don't think you're actually, when you watch something on TV, they say your brain is parked in neutral? You know, even if it's a thinking thing, a whodunit, and I'm thinking, whodunit there, and this, I think it's the butler. They say you lose, use so very little brain power, you actually use more for sleeping. I think Roger was telling me that. He's our scientist in location, if Dr. Bob isn't here. How about that? Think, think, think. Well, the gospel changes everything, and it changes the way you and I think about ourselves, the world, the Bible, our families, our country, uh, the future, death, life, all of that. We are called to think biblically. John MacArthur says thinking biblically is the key to successful godly living. Now Satan would have believers think contrary to the Word of God and then act disobediently to God's will. He'd love you to mess up your life. He would to trash your life and just ruin you and sell you cheap and wipe you out and you just be another statistic. God has something much greater in mind for you and for me as trophies of his grace. Well, the gospel changes everything. Look at your introduction. The Bible tells us that Satan is the god of this world. He's a prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and that he, through the world's system of thought, is attempting to press you into his evil way of thinking. It began in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Eve, and it's continued down to this day. It's called satanic brainwashing, if you will, and uh, it's everywhere. Uh, if you don't see it and sense it and you can't smell it, it reeks, then you're a disaster about waiting to happen. You're going to be a statistic. Uh, it's in the media. You know, there's a rebelliousness in the hearts of men and women. A rebellious, people are not neutral. We're born in sin and we sin. That's what the Bible said. Read Ephesians chapter 2. We're born as, as children of wrath, under wrath. You need to be born again. All people everywhere. We're born as really God-haters. we rather worship and serve ourselves. I want to be God. I want to do what I want to do. Don't tell me. Don't mess me up. I want to have my sin and enjoy it too, God. That's the heart of all of us. 
It begins with a little child. My truck. You don't like it? I'll punch you. A little two-year punch a boy. I know that was me. My brother tried to take it away. My Tonka truck. That's my Tonka truck. Mine, mine, mine. And we grow up. We're big bodies and big sinners. That's what we are. Rebels. I once had a friend I used to swim with. He's a professor at Manchester College in Indiana. And he had this naive view of people that, that uh, and I really challenged him on it many, many times, that people are not just in search of truth. Oh, where's truth? Just, oh, if I could just find the light of truth. I go like, you're dangerous. You're beginning at the wrong point. He said, what do you mean? He, he said, oh, you're that Calvinist. I said, well, that, the Bible teaches men are lost. They hate God. They love darkness rather than light. So are they going to, loving darkness, find oh, the light of Jesus? Oh, it's wonderful. And it won't happen on their own. Impossible. Impossible. You're beginning at the wrong point. I begin the point of, uh, they hate God. They just want to stamp God. You know, we live in a country, we have the First Amendment. It's a wonderful amendment. I know Pennsylvanians, we love our Second Amendment, right? Don't mess with us there. But that First Amendment, you know, freedom of, of the press and speech and, 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 and freedom of worship, right? Freedom of religion, we call it. And the, the Americans don't want separation of church and state. They just want God out. Just get him out of here. If you don't think that's the way it is, be careful. You're being sucked in. Sucked into the drain. You know why children, when they were in the bathtub, I remember when they were real little and you pull the drain, oh no, daddy, I'm going to go down the drain. No, no. <laughs> no, you won't. I'll rescue you. You know this. <laughs> there is a drain here and it's sucking people in and it hasn't. Don't think that you are not being sucked in and pressed in. And where's it happening? I have uh, several places. The media. Oh, oh my. And we can't get away from it. We're a media-saturated people. You're like, well, I'll just, I won't let it affect me. We swim in a polluted lake. And the media is everywhere, everywhere. We're all connected. Popular culture, music, movies, novels, books, all of the popular culture is... You think it's Christ-honoring conversation and eternal values and things that are precious and true and wonderful? You think so? I don't think so. I don't. It isn't. And you know it. You could tell. How about the educational institutions? Do you think those are citadels of truth? I don't think so. I don't think so. They're, they're citadels or fortresses of, of, of uh, oftentimes moving into strong atheism and uh, humanism and secular to the core. They're, they're, they are the cathedrals of today, pumping out more and more highly educated, brilliant men and women in godless streams of thought who then run for government, run the country, and run the media, and run the cinema, and all these avenues that affect the culture and bit by bit by bit. If you're not being renewed by the Word of God here, it's over. All you have to do is read a history book. How about just read your Bible and say, whatever happened to these, all these churches here? I mean, I see Corinth and Philippi and Colossae, and, and there they are, the, the churches. In, what happened to them? What happened to the church in Rome? What happened to these places? Just read your history book. The rise and fall of civilization, the rise and fall of churches and education. How about, how about schools like Harvard? You think like God would say, like, yeah, that's number one in my book. We love that. There's highly, highly brilliant trained people there. But do you think that it's in the ways of God? Look, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. That's what 1 Corinthians says. That used to be a Bible school. Did you know that? 1620. Uh, the edu most educated people in the community were the clergy. Uh, they were farmers and shopkeepers and all that that came over with the Puritan, the pilgrims first and the Puritans. I said, we, we don't want to have to get our pastors from, uh, from England, and only a few would come over. We've got to start a Bible school, a, th a theology school, for the training of an educated clergy. So our pastors uh, get the train, and they will have church, and we'll be able to worship God. That was Harvard. And then when it went south, because they started buying onto the German higher critics, they brought the libraries over from Germany. About 80 years later, it was, went south. 
so that Jonathan Edwards' father said, you're not going there. Harvard's down the tank already. So they started Yale. That's where Yale University started. Did you know that? Yale was started for that reason. And, and almost all of the early schools were started as Bible colleges or divinity training schools for the training of what? people needed to know the Word of God. They needed to know the gospel. They needed to have a, a trained clergy that could teach them. And it went south. And my professor and friend, Dr. Wickham, said, you read church history, you read the history. It's not a question of will it fall. It's a matter of how long will it hold on to the precious truth of the Word before they get a new idea. What about so many older churches today in this land? Churches that huge buildings, huge cathedrals and, and all that, and maybe a handful of people, some more in some places, well, where are they? What happened there? You know, there was a day probably where there were people that believed the Bible. They've lost their Bible. I heard a discussion on the news. No wonder it's confusing to people that are educated but uh, are in darkness of unbelief. They'll, they'll interview in the popular media somebody who may be a Bible-believing evangelical. What's your opinion on this? What about, what say ye about abortion? You know, we've heard about this thing recently with the president's care and the birth control and all those issues. And they'll, they'll, they'll run and bring out one opinion, then they'll bring out somebody else who's of a clergy and has espouses a completely different message. And the world looks and goes like, I guess the church doesn't have a message. You can just believe whatever you want. There are all these conflicting thoughts. No wonder it stumbles into absolute darkness and loses its power. Well, uh, this press of the culture in churches. Well, these are, this is some of Satan's most effective way in leading people to eternal destruction. It's the same question. You ever notice Satan's first question ever recorded in the Bible? When he approached Eve, he said what? Has God really said? You th that's still his favorite question, questioning the very word of God. Did God really say that? And that's why all kinds of countries and places and churches and seminaries and colleges you know, threw the Bible out. Well, we don't believe that anymore. We're educated now. Oh, really? Has God really said? Well, God did say that. She adds to it, and you know that. Wow. Well, the gospel is greater than Satan. Aren't you glad of that? It is. It's the very power of God calling men and women to salvation through the cross and the empty tomb. Do you know when you and I give the gospel out, you don't convince people. You can't. You can't. Any more than you go down the street to the funeral home, I'm going to raise the dead. Oh, really? You're going to raise the dead. No, you're not. God has to do it. But when you and I give a written track or a testimony or we bear witness for, for Jesus that there, something really happened 2,000 years ago on a cross and something really happened three days later, and this is why it was needful. God speaks in and through you. It's the, his power, the power of the gospel, to raise dead men and women to Christ. Now, isn't that great? It's not you. you say, well, I can't, I don't, I'm not very good. I don't, I'm not an influence. It's not you. You can't. It's Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. It's the same thing. Get that picture. That's what's going on. So free yourself up. Scatter the seed. Share, folks, the gospel. And God will be speaking. The Lord will speak directly through you. It's the power of God calling men and women, boys and girls, to salvation through the cross and the empty tomb. It's God's work in us. We were once darkness, but now we're in the light. We were once blind, but now we see. You see the gospel changes everything. Well, Paul tells us that the gospel changes the way we think now. Now he calls us to think biblically. And in our verse, chapter 12, verse 2, uh, simply two commands directing our thought life as we now walk in the newness of life. Two commands, one's a negative and one's a positive. Real simple. Uh, we must stop doing something and we must never stop doing the other. Keep doing it all the days of your life. Two commands. For the gospel reclaims the mind. As the ad used to say, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And what a sad thing to have a renewed mind, but to be so pressed and influenced by the culture uh, that you're really a functional pagan. You know, I was about that. One of the reasons I'm so thankful I, I had the joy of going to a Christian college and sitting under really uh, 
distinguished professors that imparted so much to me was that though I knew Christ when I was seven and I went to public school and graduated, my home wasn't, <clears throat> was, was really semi-Christian in that my dad was not saved. And so we hardly ever talked about spiritual things. Well, never when he was around. My mother would at the kitchen table you know, before dinner and that. And she was burdened that we were in Sunday school and under the Word and that her babies would come to know Jesus, whether uh, her, uh, her hubby did or not. And, we, and Dad did make a profession of faith the last week he lived. <clears throat> but um, I, I am so thankful uh, for, for that in, in, in my home and in that. But uh, the reality is, is that uh, I was a functioning pagan in my thinking. And until I, I was immersed in, uh, in my early college settings uh, in, in hearing history from a biblical Christocentric center, hearing philosophy and language and science and to take eight hours of college biology in a, in a Christian, from a Christian professor, uh, and in all of the different disciplines, you see logic and, and, and all, even English and literature and and I felt like, wow, I, I, I really felt like an unbeliever. I was so pressed in in those early years and just part of the, the, that. And that and those four years transformed by being immersed and taught from the Scripture changed my thinking forever. One of the great values of, of, of having the privilege, and that's really what it is, to have higher, higher education under godly men and women who love and honor the Word of God and see theology as the chief of science, and, uh, and, and everything is built off of that. Um, that doesn't happen in many places, and I, I am the privileged recipient of that, and I count that as a dear trust. Well, the commands in, in chapter 12, verse 2, he begins by saying, do not be conformed to this world. There's the first and in essence, he's saying we must stop allowing godless ways of thinking to mold our thoughts. You're doing it. And the way he writes it, the may is the negation in the Greek with the imperative. It means you're doing it, brothers and sisters in Christ. Stop it. Stop it. Get a grip on it. Think biblically. You're thinking like lost men and women. You're thinking like you're still in darkness. Stop it and stop it now. The word conformed here is the word from which we get scheme, schemat, schematize, scheme. It's the outward pressure that attempts to pattern us. It's the fierce pressure we feel to conform to the world's way of thinking and behaving. Uh, it's, uh, it can refer to masquerading as a worldly person. It's that outside. You ever go to a masquerade party and you pop on a Superman mask? and marry, You're not Superman. But from the outside, you know, you sort of have the form or fashion of it. Or my, my, my little granddaughters have different superhero things, you know. They walk around, flying around. They think they're superheroes. I'm the good guy, she tells Papa, you know. And, uh, they're not really that. It's put on the outside. That's the idea. This press, this fierce press from the outside to squeeze us into the world's mold. When I... Uh, Grew up in the greater Buffalo, New York area, uh, in, in a day when they made had all kinds of industry up there, and our churches were our, were filled with uh, with men that uh, mostly men in that day that worked uh, shift work at Chevy, Chevy Motors, uh, steel mills. Bethlehem Steel was up there, uh, Ford Motor, uh, chemical plants, uh, all kinds of things. We made things. It was amazing, and they got good pay and. Churches were built and missionaries sent out and church plants happened. Well, one of, uh, one of the companies in, in our city was Durez, Durez Plastics. A lot of the men worked there. It was three shifts and all that, men in our, men in our church. And it was a plastics company. And I remember one day a couple of the uh, plastics uh, executives came into our, my eighth grade general science class and they came in with a couple jars, and they had these little beads and all that kind of stuff. And, and they were talking to us. This was back in the 60s. They were talking about the world of plastics and how it's going to change everything. And we're like, right. well, we, we had known of plastics, obviously. Our telephones at home, the old, remember the old phones at home? The hard plastic? They go like, there are all kinds of plastics. 
And they started mixing the two together, and it bubbled up, and it formed a mold. And he said, this is, one day they're going to make and substitute a lot of the metals today are going to be made out of plastics. Your cars have so much metal in it, they're going to be plastic. Folks, have we lived to see that day? Have you ever seen a car that has your car ever been hit? And it's like, holy macaroni, it's plastic all the way. It's like a big, it's like a big little uh, mini car there, plastic. Everything, the bodies, the fenders, what is it here? It's uh, plastics. And they talked about how they do it. They inject the plastic into the mold. That's the word. He's, he's saying, listen, Christians, you that have embraced the gospel, the gospel is the ultimate game changer Gird up the loins of your mind. Think. You live in a world that's no friend of grace, that if they could get their hands on God, they would kill him. They did that at Calvary. You represent him. You look like him. You smell like him. They're going to hate you too. Satan's going to squeeze and squeeze you like plastic into a certain mold to shut you down so that you don't bring the glory to God that God desires you to do and cause you to masquerade have the look of something that you're really not on the inside. Well, B, it's, it's the world's. Do not be conformed to the world. Now, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the world's influence on us. And we're to stop being molded by it. Now, the word he uses is not cosmos. That's the word we're most familiar with in the Greek, but it's eon. It's the word eon. You've heard it, eons and eons and eons. And it's another word in the Greek world that means age. Uh, the, the spirit of the age that we presently live in is the idea that he, that he is talking about. He said, and, and, and the idea is that it, it appears that each age produces its own anti-God th- thought patterns. But don't let, uh, uh, don't let the age in which you live in force you into the scheme of its thinking and behaving. Resist it. Stand firm. I love that in 2 Corinthians. He calls, be men. I love that. Be men, stand up. Don't, uh, don't be wimpy about this. Be strong in the Lord. Exercise your mind. Be aware of what's going on. Paul's not talking here, I should say, about the dirty dozen. I used to hear some sermons on this when I was, uh, when I was in my earlier years. And this in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, uh, you know, the, do not be conformed to this world. That's the dirty dozen, you know, the drinking, the swearing, the smoking, the chewing, and, and all that. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something far more dangerous. He's talking about a way of thinking that will bear all sorts of evil fruit if you're not careful. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the way we think. And so we are... T- uh, we are to have the, the mind of Christ, and we, as Christians, must sift through the world views that bombard us every single day. He's talking about a way of thinking, a worldview. What is a worldview? You know, the worldview, the, uh, the word worldview is the essence of word philosophy. Walton Schouten. It's, it's one's world and life view. You know, everyone has that. You have that. We, with our eyeballs, we look out through the world in which we live in, and we see stuff happening, we hear stuff, we read it, we engage it, and we all have a set of lenses that interpret. There are no brute natural facts of their own. They're all interpreted. They're interpreted. It's interpreted. When you watch the news, somebody's making an interpretation. What's newsworthy? What's important? What's not important? I heard recently... And I'm not surprised that the march uh, on the Roe v. Wade in January down at D.C. had uh, hundreds and thousands of people down there on the D.C. Mall protesting the, uh, the horrendous 73 Roe v. Wade decision that has produced, what, 50 million abortions. And then we export that around the world. Isn't that so wonderful? You know, we export to other countries. Now we're putting pressure on Africa to get rid of uh, any kind of laws that would restrict that. And uh, it was interesting uh, because the, uh, the Washington Post was apologizing about a week later, so-called, that they didn't cover it. They didn't even take a picture of it. Well, some editor thought, well, is that newsworthy or that not? You think they're neutral? Uh-uh. No. 
Just like who selects the news, they're not neutral. There's a certain uh, uh, system of, uh, of assumptions of what's true, what's valuable, um, presuppositions, things that they embrace without, uh, that they begin with, a whole faith system. And then they begin to interpret what they see and what's happening. How, how does one form a worldview? Let me tell you what one man writes. Every worldview starts with presuppositions, which are what? They're beliefs that one presumes to be true without supporting independent evidences. A Christian worldview is this. Ron Nash writes, Human beings and the universe in which we reside are the creation of God who has revealed himself in Scripture. So I, having exercising a renewed mind, I look at the lens of everything. I look at a little baby or an unborn baby as a marvelous creation. And God's marvelous has its own DNA, its own fingerprints. Marvelous. I look at the moon out, out there and it's like God's incredible. Wow! I don't worship it. It wasn't made till the fourth day with the sun, the stars, the glory of the universe. It shouts, it screams to me and to you if you know Christ. And human beings have infinite worth because we're made in God's image. There's a dignity to human life. We're not just junk and stuff. We, don't, we reject materialism, that material is all there is. We reject naturalism, we reject evolutionism. It's an attack against God. And, uh, and so on. Well, what are some common worldly views? I just touched on a few and that we'll express here in a moment found in, the, uh, that, uh, in our culture today. Well, I want to ask you, what are some things that you feel bombarded with uh, that... Uh, that you really sense are not biblical, that float around and people assume they're true. You know, the ever notice like that? Just say air long enough, loud enough, and it, people go, I guess that's true. You know, that's just, just the way we are, you know. What about it? What are some things? A couple of things? What are some things? Anything come to mind? On ideas that float around that are not true. Susan? Reincarnation floats around. That. Yeah. Yeah. Reincarnation that floats around a lot, John. Yeah, karma, Hinduism. Okay, Dave. Uh, prosperity uh, nonsense, you know. God blesses with big bank accounts. Uh, thank you, Dave. Yes. Larry? Yes. All ideas, whether they're opposite or not, logically opposite, are valuable, and, 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 and we, must, uh, we must also agree that they may be true. Or they, they certainly, more than they have a right to their position, we would say that, of course, but you're entitled to your heresy. I mean, there's right and there's wrong. And A and B cannot be right at the same time. It's illogical. The law of non-contradiction. Mark? Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, God helps them that help themselves. He's a God of love, won't send anybody to hell. What is it, Rob? Right. Now we'll talk about that in a moment. Chance. You know, chance, uh, there's no such thing. Chance is just a statement of mathematical probability. It's not an engine that drives anything. Do you know that? You, you think it's the biggest Cummins engine driving the whole cosmos, Chance. Just give enough time. Don't you believe anything could happen? And you've just left the world of rationality. You have. You have walked into the darkness. And brilliant men and women with letters after their name talk like this. And it's a faith system. It's not science. And you have to think through this stuff. Mark? Yeah. Self-creation, do you know that's impossible? 
Something cannot create itself. Impossible. You cannot be self-made. Impossible. I mean, let's call lunacy lunacy when we hear it. Other things. Uh, I saw some other hands. There are no absolutes. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you know that you can't even say that statement with the mouth and the air that God gave without it being an absolute statement? Now, I mean, the very statement of it, there are no absolutes, is an absolute statement. It's like God saying, look how foolish they are. You can't say it. Others? These are great. These are, these are the, this is the, this is the swamp we swim in. Have it your way. Selfish things right to the core. All right, let's, I, I've given you a list of a few. Naturalism is one of them on your sheet. Naturalism, this is a religion. Believe me, this thing is gangbusters now. Why is it a religion? Do they have cathedrals? Yeah, a lot of universities and churches and other places, schools, mm -hmm. media, naturalism. What? It's a faith system. It rejects everything supernatural. How about that? A lot of churches threw the Bible out. You know, and think of the liberal uh, uh, fundamentalist debate in the 20s. Even some good Baptist church threw the Bible out. No resurrection of Jesus. Bible's not inspired. No miracles. I have some of their books. Jesus never walked on the water. Just he was near the shore and it sort of looked like he did. He didn't feed the 5,000. The boy whipped out his lunch. Everybody saw that and they said, hey, that's a good idea. And they all pulled out their lunch and ate. You know, and Larry didn't come forth from the grave. You know, and we figure all these things out. And Christ wasn't possible. You know, you just, how do we know that? Well, we know, we know why naturally. There's no, it's, it's above human ability. It's natural. And that's above it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and we, you can't, have you ever noticed how much you can do in a day? Not too much. And it's something that's a little bit above what you are. Not, you, you say, at the very beginning, impossible. Never happened. And that is embraced by our culture as a closed system of thought. Carl Sagan, in more recent days, is one of the chief proponents. Now, he died a few years ago. R.C. Sproul had a communication going on with Sagan. He was a professor at Cornell University, uh, brilliant in his areas, but he's uh, locked in to naturalism. They witnessed and bore witness of Christ to him before he died as far as they know, he died apart from Christ. His favorite statement on the cosmos, how many of you saw that, that series on the cosmos? Yeah, he would say this, and I have it on your sheet. The cosmos is, uh, where's my sheet here? Here it is. is. Is all that ever is, or ever was, or ever will be. Uh, he just identified as God. I mean, that's a statement of God. The cosmos is all that ever is, was, or ever will be. It's God then. Naturalism. And uh, frankly, the Lord's not impressed. And I would suggest, since he died, he had a radical change of thinking. Radical. Anyone disagree with that? It's like the cosmonaut, when he was in outer space, he said, I've been all out there and I never saw God. And someone said all he had to do was step outside of that earth bubble. And he would have met him. Charles Darwin, uh, the popular uh, uh, prophet, natural selection. Listen, Charles Darwin had a burr in the saddle. His nine-year-old daughter died. Charles Darwin had a godly wife. She was godly. She was actually a Baptist. Did you know that? And I don't know, I, there was a track Pop used to give out that Charles Darwin trusted Christ on his deathbed. I don't know that that's really true. I've seen that floating around. Some of you have seen that. Be careful. Don't. I would not give that one around. But uh, uh, in, in, in any event, Charles uh, Darwin uh, had a bitterness against God and rejected God and went off on the beagle and came up with this cockamamie nonsense and uh, this natural selection, the engine, that everything just comes, survival of the fittest, and the God, it's the God of chance plus time. Chance plus time. Chance is just the mathematical probability. Flip a coin, 
A hundred times, how many times will it come up heads? How many times tails? Chance says 50%. It's a statement of the mathematical uh, uh, probability is all that it is. Not an engine of anything. Nothing. And, and it's blinded in rebellion that, uh, well, just given enough time, don't you think uh, anything will happen? Now, if you don't think this is the major thought in schools and universities, National Geographic, Discovery Channel on TV, all of these, you're living in a different universe. This is, this is locked on. Go to any university uh, museum and they'll say, yes, this rock here is, is uh, 10 uh, million years old, you know. That's locked onto that whole system. And God, you know, God's not surprised because he said in 2 Peter chapter 3, in the last days, people would, would be embraced by this, called uniformitarian. Things are just as they are naturally, and they'll just always go on. And what, you know what God said about that? These are people that willfully forget about the flood. That there was a day when God said, enough is enough, and he destroyed the earth that, that once was. And if you're wondering where you're going to get gasoline to put in your car, it came from the vegetation and life that once was, but was smashed and buried in a worldwide flood that God said, get the message of that. This is my world. I'm in control. I'm the creator. I'm the king. And I'm coming again. And Christ, the Lord, is the Lord of glory. And he alone is God. Secularism, number two, is a way of thinking that only looks at the here and now. This age is all that there is. There's no thought about tomorrow. Get the gusto. Now is the only thing that matters. Now, now, now. That's just now. You know, it trickles into the way we live. Couples date, right? And they just, uh, you know, dating with, uh, with benefits or, or this is where government spends money. Hey, it's just the here and now. Who cares about national debt? Oh, well, that's someone else. That, oh, you know, it's just, it's just, it's a diluted, polluted way of thinking. You see, and it affects the way you spend your money, the way we, we operate morally, the way we just here and now, I'm just, I don't care about. It affects the way we think about schooling and preparing for the future. Well, I don't know what's coming down there. I'm just going to live it up today. You know, I don't really care. I don't give a hoot and this kind of thing. What? Here and now. Here and now. This existential kind of just, I only have right now. I don't have the moral, so I'm just going to be careful. That is pagan to the core. How about humanism? The reality is a circle, and God's not in it. Man is. Humanism is a way of thinking that makes too much of man and has no room for God. The best illustration in the Bible, I have it on your sheet, is Daniel 4, uh, chapter, uh, verse 30, and that whole section there, where Nebuchadnezzar, you know, aren't I the great king? And look at what I've done. I've built all this for me. Ah, ah, ah. Daniel had warned him a year earlier, <clears throat> you know, king, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And when he acted like an animal, and that's what he did, God said, what's that? And you notice God hears, the, you can't read that section without... God said, well, let's hear he is boasting on how great he is, man. And God said, that's it. Seven years, you're going to act like an animal, you're going to be an animal. And he wandered around for seven years as an animal. It was Daniel, I believe, that kept that kingdom intact. So when he came back, and read the end of that chapter, because he makes a great statement of the glory of God. He came to realize there's a sovereign God in heaven that rules, and it's not him. Took him seven years to get that out of his system. How about relativism? Ron, you mentioned that. <clears throat> relativism is a way of thinking that denies the existence of absolutes. One opinion is as good as the next, no morals. Alan Bloom, professor at the University of Chicago, came out with a book in the, I think it was the 80s, The Closing of the American Mind. I remember buying that when it was on the New York uh, Times list, bestseller. And read that, and Alan Bloom uh, did not profess to know Christ, but he said, the only thing that I can count on, on all of the students that come to the University of Chicago, is that every one of them, and let me insert some words, are brainwashed in the thought that everything is relative. It's the only thing. And they have parked their brains out in the parking lot, and he taught the humanities and these kind of things, and he goes, it's the only thing, the only thing. And you see, Aristotle was right. If you don't have the absolute 
absolute one. And then you have only particulars, every, all the details down here. If you don't have that, then this is all you have, then one opinion is as good as the next, right? And that's the world we live in. Now think of the, the, the ugly reality of that. Think of the ugly reality if you carry that out of the, of the classroom. That means there's no morals. To say something's right is a stu- it's a nonsense statement. You mean, what, what we're going to take a poll? That's what we, we've left with now. Let's take a public poll and find out how many agree with, you know, if you do this, is that wrong? Is it three out of five Americans say, four out of seven say. And it's this morality by polling nonsense, this consensus. And it can shift and be manipulated and change. Do you ever see that? I see it happening through the decades. You know, the social engineering thinks have certain values or lack of values, and you'll see it injected into the culture. And pretty well, you'll see it more and more, and now the years go on, and, and then you'll see the population starting to come around and say, yeah, I think that's maybe okay, because they've been softened for about 20 years. You know, if everything is relative, there's no right and wrong, and, uh, and, and Nazism becomes right then the only thing you have left with, really, and Schaefer writes a lot, is force. If I can force you to do whatever, then I'm right. And if you don't like it, I'll kill you. In fact, I'll exterminate six million of you, and the weak are gone. That's all Darwinianism taken out of the classroom, perverted, twisted, and taken into, uh, into life. That the weak, you know, we have, we have American with Disabilities Act. That's a romantic idea that comes from the Christian mindset, you know. Not from relativism. Well, who cares about the weak? Why should they park up front? We ought, to, we ought to exterminate them. They're a drain on the financial system, the medical system. That's the reality. That's the logical outworking of that. Euthanasia, right? Why should someone hang around for 20 years and suck money out of this depleting amount of national money? We ought to euthanize them and make them happy. You know, that's a twist on words. You know, make them happy, euthanize them, go kill them. Kill the, 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 the cripples, the unwanteds, the, un, you know, the nationals, like the Jews you really don't want, and this kind of thing. Just get rid of them. Might is right. And that was the foundation of Nazism taken right out of Darwinianism just years later. You see, ideas have consequences. And you see it played out. The, it's a, the things that are taught in the classroom wait about 20 years. Wait, about 20, maybe 30 years, you're going to see it on Main Street. You're going to see it everywhere. And some of you were in school long ago enough, and you began to see things, you go like, wow, and it's a different world. And some of you live long enough, and so folks have said, it's a different world than when I grew up. It's a different place. It's meaner. It's nastier. We don't have the neighborhoods and the, and the, and the, the, the care for one another. And in the midst of this, God is saying to us as Christians, listen, I'm calling out a people. I'm calling you out. You're, you're, look, it may be dark and getting dark, but you're going to shine like greater lights. Because wherever it's darker, you're going to emanate even more so. The love of Christ is going to radiate. But, but you've got to be careful. Use your brine. Don't get sucked in. Don't get sucked down the drain. Resist it. I, we'll have a movie on at home, and I'll, see, I'll yell at my TV. Do you do that? That's not right, or I'll flip the channel. I get nauseated. I, I like the science channel, but when they start throwing around this pagan billion years or this kind of, I go like, that's it. I'm not giving them a dime. I don't know. I, I never can figure out how they know how many people are watching a program. So I quickly turn it because I don't want them to get credit for that. <laughs> or or I, have to, I don't know how that works. But anyway. The last one is mindlessness. You know, that's modern man walking around with his iPod, the earplugs in. Nothing wrong with that. Just don't be so totally distracted and mindless all the time. Relax and enjoy that, of course. But don't be amused to death. Use your brain. The gospel changes everything. Learn to resist the evil brainwashing and and unbiblical thinking that will press you and press you. Do that. I remember when the Lord was getting a hold of my heart as a senior in high school, 
And I'm glad I did it, really. I, I had to take a sociology class, and they came, the prof, uh, teacher came to the end, end of the year and he said, you, you write a paper on any, anything you want that dealt with humanity. I go, really? Well, the, the teacher was uh, Robert Cerrone. He was an assistant wrestling coach. So I knew uh, Mr. Cerrone pretty well and uh, had wrestled with the team for a number of years and so on. But he was, he was purely an unbeliever. He was educated, but he was humanistic and relativistic and all that to the course. So I go like, and the Lord's working in my heart the spring semester of my senior year. I'm, I'm going to write a paper that lays the gospel out for him bit by bit, since he gave it an open title. So and I wrote it for him, and I said, I really don't care if he fails me on it, because I, I love to see him come to know Christ. So I did. I wrote about eight or ten page paper and unfolded the, the reality of the claims of Christ and the gospel and the fact that he came once, he's coming again. He's coming again. Well, when I got it back from him, he had all kinds of notes written on it, and he was kind. He didn't fail me, but he didn't give me a very good grade either. But uh, I was so glad I did that. You know why? I, I lost track of him, and years and years later, years and years later, uh, I discovered that he had died. And he had died a younger man. I, I don't know if he was 52 or 3, um, but I, I felt in my heart, Lord, thank you that I could bear witness to him in social work and social science. That's usually pretty anti-Christian in its philosophy. has roots and memories of love your brother and help them, but the way they carry it out is often very godless and very secular to the core. And so I was so glad I could bear witness, and hopefully, hopefully, God used that and saved him uh, uh, during the course of his life. Stop allowing the godless world ways to mold your thoughts. But he doesn't end there. He goes on with a second command, and we're going to fly here. Keep on renewing your mind in the, uh, so that we think God's thoughts after him. God has renewed our minds in Christ. Shall we not think with him? John Stott recently went to heaven from uh, London, the great pastor there. God has renewed our minds. Shall we not think with them? We are to be a thinking people. As Christians, our minds are to be transformed by the renewal and that's the word metamorphosis, and we all know that from a butterfly, like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon, the metamorphosis of that worm in cocoon, and then breaks forth, and it's a beautiful monarch butterfly. It's an internal change from within, and it radiates from the out. The idea here is that God in salvation has given us a new nature. If you're saved, you have a new nature. Behold, all things are new. Now think like a Christian. Our minds are to be molded by God's wonderful Word. And one of the ch our church's uh, verses, Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's our only hope. Or we're going to get sucked right down the drain. That's our only hope. Colossians 3.16, memorize it if you've not. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Increasingly, we will think like Jesus, for we will be being made in His likeness transformed thinking. It's possible. It is. You can be a believer and a functioning pagan in your thinking and have all sorts of trouble. Or you can just give yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, I give you my mind. Use it, Lord, for thy glory. Use it. God wants it. Dr. Wickham, I made mention of him earlier, was saved at Princeton University studying paleontology and ancient history. And God saved him through a Bible study there on campus. And uh, he was a hardened evolutionist. He was hardened into the ways of, uh, of university thinking at that point. Did a lot of research when he first heard the gospel to try and show. He had, you know, the typical problems. You know, Jonah and the whale. How can a whale swallow a man? Then the flood. How big is a boat? How could that ever happen? Anti-scientism. You know, this kind of thing. And then he said, after several weeks... God opened my heart and saved me. And he said, you know what happened? All those problems I sort of had with the Word of God, they vanished. And he said, I don't know what happened. I became a new creation in Christ. And my mind, it was open like the light. And I'll tell you, he said, it didn't happen. But if God had said, Jonah swallowed the whale, I would have believed it. I just, I passed from dark to light. And that was God's Word to me. God doesn't work in nonsense, of course, 
but he became new with transformed thinking. And that happened in your life if you're saved. Well, B, Paul is calling us not to think about Christian things, as good as that is, no. Rather, he's calling us to think about all things through the lens of Scripture. Think about all things through the lens of Scripture. Think about God. He is really there and he's not silent. Franny Schaefer's book, The Fear of the Lord is the Beginning of Wisdom. Think about God's revelation in the world. Since he has spoken truth, the opposite of it is false. There is no relativism. None. And God, I remind you, not Rene Descartes, is the definer of all things. You know, Descartes began the whole skepticism. You know, the whole skepticism. I think, he began with, I think, uh, therefore I am. That's what he began. What's that mean? That man was the beginning and the center and the definer of everything. I'm sorry, that's not true. God in, in his word will be the one who will put the meaning and the value of all things. And he tells men and women who we are and what we're to be doing and where we're going and how we get there and how we're to do it in his word. He is the definer of ultimate meaning, not man. And God has spoken truth. Think about the doctrine of man. Man is uh, far more important than the humanist imagines. He's far more important. What do I mean by that? Uh, B.F. Skinner wrote a book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Beyond. He said, well, we've got to get beyond this notion that man has an innate sense of dig dignity and worth. That's, a, that's an old biblical idea that somehow man has worth and dignity. No. No. He's nothing more than the sum total of what's happened to him. No way. Although the things that happen to us affect us, of course, Men and women are made in the very image of God. So we don't look down to the animal world to find our significance and place. That's what the humanist does. The naturalist does. We look up to God. He's personal. Three persons were personal. We lack but little of God. We're not God. He's God. And so man is far more important than the humanist would man. But man in his fallen state, that's Genesis 3, isn't far worse than the humanist would ever suppose. He's far worse under the sentence of death. Born in sin and he sins. And think about the doctrine of redemption. It intensifies man's value. What do I mean? God does it all. God does it for man. God became a man. Think about the ultimate uh, validation put on the dignity of man. God became a man in Jesus Christ. Wow. That is pretty incredible. Not a Martian. Did you notice? Jesus didn't become a Martian. He's not out there somewhere in some outer space, somewhere else. We don't know of life anywhere else. When we found it here, isn't that amazing, on this little blue planet. Wow. God became a man. Well, Scripture is the standard by which we must test all other truth claims. What saith the Word? Has God said? Yes, He has said. Our problem, our shame is, is we're too lazy to study the Word and to find it. And, and in heaven we might like, Lord, why didn't I spend more time? I should have meditated on it. should have studied it. It should have formed my thinking. It should have formed my life. As I live for you now that you've died for me. Well, last, the result of such thinking will cause you to approve and to do God's will for your life. What does he mean? He says in, the, in verse 2 that God's uh, will is good. That's at Romans 8.29. For we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God. Why do you think he states here that God's will is good? I put it down. Often we don't believe it, do we? We sometimes get stumbling on it. God's forgotten me again, I think. He's lost my address. Or it may be hard, right? But God says it's good. It's good. God's will is good. But more than that, it's pleasing. God's will is pleasing. At the end of life, after serving the Lord Jesus, you'll be filled with joy. I've seen folks in their final days filled with utter joy. I thought I was standing near heaven. The radiance of God. Mm, mm, mm. And I've seen the other. I've seen horror. I've seen it. I've seen it. Joy. It's pleasing. It's not a wasted life. Not a groaning. Oh, Lord, I knew what to do and I didn't do it. Oh, now I have to face you and give an account. And we all have some of that. But minimize it. Make that regret minimal. 
live for him. It's pleasing. And finally, it's perfect. It's complete. It's not lacking. There's a satisfying wholeness to it. I love that. Wow. If we reach the end of our days dissatisfied with life, it'll mean that we have been living in the world's way and have been conformed to it rather than being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Well, lessons for our life, and then we're done. Number, number one, lessons for life. If you, if you are saved, Jesus calls you to think in biblical categories about life and death, meaning, purpose. What am I doing here? What's it all about? How's it all fit together? There really is evil. You know, in a world that's all relativistic, there's no difference between you can punch someone in the face or help a lady across the street. There may, there's no value difference. But since, since, since there is a difference, and God has spoken, and Jesus has come, and he died for my sin and your evil service, the way I think about God, think about my neighbors. People don't exist for me to smash them and, and to climb to the top of the hill, if you will. We'll think differently. Differently. And it's a 24-7 because the fiery darts of Satan will attack your mind. The tendency is for us to think very selfishly. Me, myself, and I. I didn't get my cut. Where's mine? There was a day not too many years ago people would wear that joy. I like that, that little pendant. A little joy, you know. You ever see that? I said, well, that's Sam Morton. Well, it's the order of things in my life. Well, what do you mean? The woman, she was wearing Well, Jesus is first. And then it's others. I'm loving my neighbor. And then it's me. You, me, for me. Jesus, other, you, joy. I said, boy, that's right. I like that. Well, number two, second lesson. Recognize that your mind is the battlefield. Now, we live near Gettysburg. People come from all over the world to watch through that and march. Can you, can you walk on Pickett's Field there? I mean, can you? They don't kick you out, Sue? Do, they won't kick you off that? They'll... Oh, do you? Any different outcome? When that? <laughs> yeah, is it? Okay. I mean, this is one of the great battlefields of the world. People come and study it, the three-day battle there. There's a greater battlefield, though, and you and I walk on it's between our ears. It's our mind, and we must resist wrong thinking by filling our mind with Scripture. Be careful about it. Be careful of your entertainment. I mean, even beautiful things can have things that will weaken your resolve for righteousness. It will. We're still flesh. We still have a bent within us. We still have a history and a propensity for evil. Be careful about it. If you're going to do that, spend the, you know, if you're going to read some other things, then spend an hour reading your Bible. Counterbalance that. Read some of the great church history things. Read, memorize the Scripture. So you're, you're, you're not just one-sided reading. And there are a lot of things that are okay in human life. And movies, movies really are a story. Put the theme... Be careful about that. The eye gate, things that you see, you always, they're always there. Be careful about that. Music you listen to. Some of it's very good. Some of it's sort of neutral. Some of, it's, some of it I love. Some of it's uh, romantic love songs. I love, to, love that. I romantically love my wife, and they're beautiful. But be careful. And some of it crosses the line. and over. To, be careful about that. Be careful. Number, number three. It's, is it there? There it is. Always think about the worldview being expressed by the speaker, the writer, the singer, the actor, the politician, the teacher. Learn to think critically. That doesn't mean negatively, but analyze it. The writer of a book you're reading has a world has a point of view. The one who's writing a song has a certain point of view and a value or lack of value. The one who, who puts together a theater performance or a movie has a worldview, and they're expressing it through that. There's, there's a message they're trying to get out. Learn to think about that. 
Uh, and uh, it, it will help you uh, in this battle for your mind to discern evil so you're not sucked in by it. A lot of times I feel it's like boiling frogs. I love that because I used to catch them when I was a boy. And you, you, we all know that now. How, you, how do you boil a frog? You know, you, you, don't, you don't put the big pot in and get the water bubbling at 212, right? Throw the frog in. He, he's, he's not stupid. He jumps out. You just put him in, it's sort of like a spa. He goes, like, oh, this is great. This is like 110. Just, you know, a little bit. Now it's 140. And pretty soon you got frog soup. He didn't know what hit him. Our, our minds are a lot like that. Be careful about that. It's the creeping thing. Number four, learn to love the Lord with all your heart. And that's with your mind. That's to the depth of your being. Love him and give, tell him that and give the, your mind to him and think his thoughts after him and be like Jesus. You know, Jesus was like that. You think Jesus was influenced by the culture in his day? He stood as light among darkness. And that's what he's creating in us. And number five and last. Number five. Today the door of salvation is open. I don't know if you're, if you're not here and you're not saved, but it's open. Come to Jesus today and he'll save you from your sin. That's the starting point. Come and be saved today. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for your word. It's so wonderful. And thank you, Lord, for teach us to put these things into practice, the gospels, the, the uh, changes everything. We offer our bodies to you. We offer our minds. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking trashy thoughts or sloppy thoughts or lazy thoughts or just being completely amused when we ought to be engaged in thinking your thoughts, and use us, Lord, as salt and light in a world that's desperately needing us to bear witness for Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would bless in our meal to follow and our fellowship, and we commit that to you as well, and we'll thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.